Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Crosswinds, it's a, it is very cool to have you guys. Uh, good to be here during the Christmas season as we get ready to celebrate the, the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, um, let me just tell you a little bit. Uh, we are actually, as a church, studying our way through the book of Genesis. Now, last week, we took a little break from the book of Genesis. What we did is we talked about the mission of Crosswinds Church, and we talked about the vision we have for the future. We talked about the Legacy Foundation, and I want to continue to encourage everyone to get on board with one of those Legacy Foundation meetings. And today, we are back into the book of Genesis. But because the next few weeks are quite honestly going to be rather funky here at Crosswinds, let me just lay out for you like what's going to happen for the rest of December and into January so you can prepare for our funky schedule. Today we are in Genesis 48. No big deal. Things are continuing as usual. Next week we'll be in Genesis 49, real close to the end of the book. No big deal. But then after that, we're going to have a Christmas Eve service on Saturday night. That'll be at 7 o'clock and it'll be in the Sammy Center. So I invite you to be there for our Christmas Eve service in the Sammy Center. The next morning, Christmas Day, is on a Sunday. Just so you know, the way we're doing this, we are not going to be having worship service on Christmas Day here at Crosswinds. We're doing something a little different, and we're trying to use Christmas Day on Sunday with some very strategic ways. Pastor Jordan and I, we are uh, preparing a, a small video message about 10 minutes long, Hopefully next week it will be available for you with DVDs, but we expect the best way that most everyone will be able to access it will be through the internet. And we'll have it on our website, and we are asking you to take the uh, opportunity for some home worship on Christmas Day and to watch our little bit of message on the importance of Jesus' coming and His incarnation, why this is such an incredibly big deal, and why we celebrate it so enthusiastically. Then you have a little challenge that day, which is to take that video and share it on all of your social media accounts. And the reason I say that is we want that video to be viewed by a whole bunch of people. In fact, far more people than would ever come to church on Christmas Day we hope to reach through the Internet. So that's our goal is to saturate our area electronically on Christmas Day with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now... The Sunday after that is increasingly funky. Because do you realize January 1st, New Year's Day, is also on a Sunday? So we are calling that officially Hangover Sunday. So uh, we'll see who make it. Who makes it? I've already instructed the coffee bar that they are going to double brew the coffee for the first service. So you should be able to stand a spoon up in it by the time it comes out of the maker. Uh, and if you need it, we'll probably have like a, just a, a basket, an offering plate full of no-dos for you. Uh, but that's the way it's going to be on January 1st. We will have worship. We're going to do something a little different. I'm going to teach you about the Word of God. It's a topical message that day, the importance of the Word of God in our life, the power of the Word of God to change our life. And I'm going to challenge you to get into the Word of God regularly on your own. This will be a, a really good message so you can understand why this book is so different than anything else out there. The week after that, January 8th. And guess what? We finally get back to Genesis. 
for Genesis chapter 50, which is the last chapter of the book. The following weekend is January 15th. That'll start our new series, which will be in the book of 1 Timothy. And we'll roll through that for a while until we get to the Generous Living series right before Easter. So that tells you a little bit why everything is going to be funky and sort of jumbled up with Christmas Day being on a Sunday and New Year's Day being on a Sunday and how we're going to handle those next few weeks coming up. So let's go ahead and get ready to study God's Word. Let me set the stage a little bit for you. Two weeks ago when we were last in Genesis, we were in Genesis chapter 47. That chapter is sort of an overview of what happened for the 17 years after Joseph's brothers and Joseph's father came to Egypt and the family was reunited. Now, in a nutshell, what happened was that times were tough for the Egyptians because when Joseph's brothers came to Egypt, they were only two years into what was a seven-year famine. And while times were lean and difficult and there was nothing uh, really to sell, Joseph managed it, we saw, incredibly well. And we saw some inter interesting stuff on economics at that time and how he, came, he maintained value and just didn't give away food for nothing. But people worked for things, so there was an exchange and there was an economy that was actually going on when there was no harvest. Really some good stuff. But while things were hard for the people in Egypt, the amazing thing we learned back then was God was blessing the sons of Jacob that were in the land of Goshen. In fact, we saw that in that famine, they had great prosperity. They were actually buying land, buying cars, buying boats to go up and down the Nile River. Families were riding jet skis. A lot of motorhomes, I assume, were bought. And take it tongue-in-cheek, but you get the idea. They were doing incredibly financially well. In fact, uh, the, the sons of Jacob are going, man, we should have come to Egypt years ago. The city is the place we need to be. Look at all the accoutrements, all the success, all the stuff. This is like the place. Everybody's happy except for one person, Grandpa. You know, Grandpa's never happy. Grandpa Jacob, he actually calls Joseph in and he says, let me sit on your hand. Now, I know that sounds strange. If you've been in Genesis for a while, that won't sound strange. But for the newbies, that may shock you. The way they would make a solemn covenant or a solemn vow is that they would sit on somebody's hand. So he says, Joseph, I need you to make a solemn promise to me that when I die, you will not bury me here in the land of Egypt. As much as you guys love this place, this place is not our home. We're only here temporarily. Bury me back in the land of Canaan, in the tomb of my forefathers with Abraham and with Isaac. Bury me in that same tomb because that is the place where God has said we will be ultimately and forever. In fact, that is where God promised Abraham when he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees years ago, much earlier in the book of Genesis, that this promised land will be yours. And he said the same thing to Isaac, this promised land will be yours. And he said the same thing to Jacob, this promised land will be yours. So make sure you bury me there. Now, uh, what has gone on? Genesis 47 is essentially Jacob doing the prearrangement plans for his funeral. 
Genesis chapter 48 that we jump into today, uh, Jacob has one foot in the casket. <laughs> he literally has hours, or maybe we should just count it in minutes, left to live. And what he's going to do in Genesis 48 and in Genesis 49 is he is going to say his final words and give his final blessing to his children and his family before he passes away. Now, if you're someone like Jacob, who has actually had God speak to you multiple times, if you're a patriarch and you have an incredible family, and God has promised to work through your family. When you say some final last words, it's sort of like E.F. Hutton, right? People need to lean in and listen. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to lean in and listen and learn from the words, the final words, he says to his son Joseph and his two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So join with me as we look in the outline, and we'll start with the first four verses. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. And then Israel summoned his strength, and he sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you as an everlasting possession. Everyone knew that the, the day was coming, and I'm sure Joseph has tried to prepare himself for this day, but you can never be prepared for that phone call. When Joseph essentially gets the phone call that says, come quickly, your father won't last long. You need to get here in time to speak to him before he dies. And... Uh, it tells us that he took his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. I picture him putting them in the back of his fast Italian chariot you know, and busting across town to get there so he can, can be with his father. And all three of them burst into the room. And Jacob, his dad, sits up in bed with what little strength he has left. And I could see all three of them leaning in because I'm sure Jacob's voice was weak. And he's willing himself to live. What will he say? Now, what you see is Jacob essentially just begins to give his testimony, his God story. What has God done in his life, and what are the promises God has made to him in his life? He starts by simply saying this, you know, God appeared to me in the land of Luz, and you're going like, okay, Luz, who is Luz, what is Luz, is that like a cheese, where do we find it, I've never seen it before. What you need to understand is Luz is very, it's, it's the same thing as Bethel, okay, they're, they're similar. Now, if you understand that, and you've been around for our study in Genesis, and you remember earlier, all of a sudden things will begin to connect. Do you remember when Jacob chose to steal the birthright from his older brother Esau. He stole it by tricking his aging and ailing father Isaac. And as a result of that, Esau 
was thinking of killing him. So Jacob ran from home. He was heading to see Uncle Laban in a faraway land. It was the really the low point in his life. Running for his life, he stopped at the place of Bethel. And it's at that point where God sought him out. And God met him. And you guys remember the story of Jacob's ladder? That's it. Or if you've been with us earlier in the series, you know that technically it's the stairway to heaven. Sorry, <laughs> the deaf leopard. Is that deaf leopard? Or who is it? Van Halen? Was it? Which one is stairway to heaven, guys? Led Zeppelin. I'm sorry. I forget my earlier groups. I'm a little rusty on it, okay? But he, you know, sorry. He, he had the stairway to heaven before Led Zeppelin did. So that's where the stairway to heaven was. And all of a sudden, he saw the stairway with angels ascending and descending from heaven right there. And God seeks him out. And God promises him three things in this low point in his life. And they are this. Number one, descendants. Number two, that God would give him the promised land, like he had promised Abraham, like he had promised Isaac. Now he promised Jacob. And this is very important for what we're looking at this morning, that God would be with him through the rest of his life and never leave him no matter what happened or what kind of tragedies or difficulties befell him. Those are the three promises that God makes to him. Now, let's look back in Genesis 28 and look when God gives these promises. I think it helps to make it stand out. And behold, the Lord stood above it. This is talking about the stone staircase, or if you want to call it Jacob's ladder. And said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. That's the promise of the promised land. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in, that is essentially the idea of multiple offspring. And then it says, And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, if you understand this, we know ultimately this is referring at that point to Jesus Christ. And then notice this, Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, you will, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God will be with him no matter what difficulties he faces in life. Now, that was when he was leaving the promised land. He was gone for about 20 years with Uncle Laban. And if you've been around for a while, you know the story of him ending up with four wives and children and all kinds of stuff. And he comes back into the promised land, stays at Bethel, and essentially the same thing happens again. And God reaffirms those promises. Now, were they fulfilled? Some yes and some no. What about the descendants? Abraham struggled to have even one child. Isaac only had two children. God has been incredibly faithful to Jacob about having a multitude of descendants. Remember, the guy has 12, 12 children, four wives. By the time they go into Egypt, there's over 100 people in their family. Now, I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, Cleo Johnson, who is a member of our church, he passed away on Monday. He did his funeral last night here at the church. And, um, you know, he had four kids. 
And it is four kids with their families. They filled this whole section up. I'm thinking, wow, this is what Cleo was able to do with four kids who live in the area. Imagine what would happen if you had 12 kids who were being extremely fruitful and multiplying. Just a lot of kids. 17 years later, after they've come into Egypt, which is about now, what are we up to? Like 150, 175 in the family? I mean, that is one massive family reunion when they have it. And also, it is a lot of birthday cards that Grandpa has to send. But it's a growing family, so God has been very faithful to him. They don't have the promised land yet. In fact, it seems like now they've had a major detour on getting the promised land because they've left it and they're in Egypt and everybody likes it. And here is Jacob's message to Joseph and ultimately his message to Ephraim and to Israel and ultimately his message to you and to me. You know what? God will be faithful. He will keep his promise. Even when things seem like God has forgotten about it, even when all the difficulties and problems in life seem to look like it's derailing everything, God will be faithful. Now, God's been faithful in giving him children. And you know the way this story turns out. They stay in Egypt for 400 years. And they are, God is faithful to multiplying their descendants like crazy. We're talking it into the millions. No promised land yet. And then all of a sudden, it looks like God has forgotten about them. A pharaoh arises who is out to get them. In fact, they're having to throw their male children in the Nile. It's an attempt at Pharaoh trying to genocide them, work them to death, and get rid of all the male children so there's nobody to last. And does God come to the rescue? Yes, He does. You know the whole story of the Exodus. God takes them out of Egypt. He is faithful to His promise. Now, that generation doesn't get the promised land. There's actually another generation that has to go through. But ultimately, He brings them to the promised land. God is faithful to His Word. Even if it took hundreds of years, if He said it, it'll come true. And this is what we have to remember. All the promises that God has made to us in His Word that apply to you and me will come true. Now let's continue the story. And now, he says, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, they're going to be mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padam to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrathah. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrathah, that is Bethlehem. And when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, well, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they're my sons whom God has given me. And he said, bring them to me. Please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. Behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. 
Most of you don't realize what is going on here, so let me explain this. This is amazing. What we have is Jacob on his deathbed is choosing to adopt Joseph's two sons into his biological family. Sounds strange. Why would Jacob choose to adopt Joseph's sons into the original 12 sons of Israel? Here's what you need to know. He said, you will adopt Ephraim and Manasseh, he says, and they shall be like Reuben and Simeon. If you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 5, this is actually explained in more detail. He says, I will adopt them essentially in place of Reuben and Simeon. Reuben is the firstborn son of Jacob through Leah. Simeon is the secondborn son of Jacob through his other wife, Leah. Now, if you remember a little bit about these guys, they're not the best characters. They're sort of like the shame of the family. Reuben, he's the guy that chooses to sleep with his father's wife, Bilhah. So the guy's into incest. Not the kind of guy you want leading the family line. Simeon, not much better. When it, his, his sister, Dinah, was raped in the city of Shechem, whose idea was it to respond by killing every single male in the entire city? And who carried it out? Simeon, the second born of Leah. So, the firstborn's into incest, the secondborn's a mass murderer. Not really what you want leading the, the family. And what Jacob does is he says, I am going to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, and I am going to put them in leadership of the entire family line. Son number one is going to be Ephraim. Son number two is going to be Manasseh. Essentially, let me just tell you, he says, you know what? You're, my grandkids through you, I'm incredibly proud of them, and I'm incredibly blessed by them, and I want them in leadership of the family. The other thing you need to notice, and this will explain why he says things that he does, he has regrets. He wanted to have more children through Rachel. He did. As you know, she only had two sons. The first was Joseph. The second was Benjamin, and she died in childbirth with Benjamin. This is why he comes along and says, oh, and Rachel, she died in childbirth. Oh, and it just kills me to think about that. And what he's doing is by adopting Ephraim of Manasseh into the family, it's sort of making up for a little bit of the loss of not having more children from Rachel to fill that out there. The other thing to notice is he has a bad case of cataracts. I don't know if you realize that. Remember uh, what happened with Jacob did to his ailing father, Isaac, who couldn't see, had a bad case of cataracts. He tricked his father into giving him the blessing instead of Esau. Now he's in the same situation. No Dr. Fox around, didn't like to do the cataract surgery. Yeah. Jacob can't see, so he says, like, who is here? Tell me who it is. And Joseph confirms, it's okay, it is Ephraim and Manasseh. And he says, okay. They're here, good, I want to bless them. By the way, I need to help you picture this. Ephraim and Manasseh are not little tiny kids at this point. They are probably in their 20s. So uh, says he has them sit on their knee. Boy, that's a big kid to sit on your knee. But that's exactly what's going on. 
But I want to camp on just one little phrase here, which I think picks up the theme. He says this, before I bless them, I want you to realize I never expected to see you again, Joseph. But not only am I seeing you, but I'm seeing your grandsons as well. He's saying, God, you have been so incredibly faithful to me. There's this period of my life where Joseph, the son I loved, the son I favored, was gone. For 20 plus years, I mourned and grieved because he was no more. And now I look back in my old age and I can see that God had a plan, a good plan. In fact, it was God's good plan to bring Joseph to Egypt, to raise Joseph into power in Egypt, and then to use Joseph to save us through Egypt. Not only has God had such a good plan that he brought Joseph back, but now I get to see his sons, who, he, who Grandpa Jacob is incredibly proud of. In fact, he's so proud of them, remember he's putting them in leadership over his first and second biological children. And what Jacob is saying is, you know, God has been so good. God has been so faithful and so kind to me. And as I've become older, I can look back now and I can see the ups in life and I can see the downs in life. And now I can see what God was doing in those low points and how he actually had a good plan in those hard times. And with the years that Jacob's been able to look back over, he could understand and see the terrain of life and see God's wisdom and see God's goodness. Let's jump in the next part of the text. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand, and he laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and on his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, and he said, The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, once Jacob has officially adopted Ephraim and Manasseh into his family, he wants to bless them into his family. And Joseph gets them sit, sitting there, sort of in the right spot, so all dad has to do is go like this, because the right hand would go to the, would go to the older and the left hand would go to the younger, because the, the hand of right hand is the hand of greater blessing. And what does Jacob do? And we're going to cover that in a moment as to why he does that and what's so significant about that. But let me just make a little mention here on something. As Joseph starts to do the blessing, he says this, The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. Let me camp on that. Who is this angel, he says, that has redeemed him from all evil? 
what you guys might think. Who, who do you think that's going to be? Now, I know this is somewhat speculative, but some of the scholars put this in. This is the angel, not an angel. In the Old Testament, when you find the angel specified, it is usually a reference to the pre-incarnate Jesus. What does Jesus do? He comes to save His people. That is what we're celebrating at Christmas. What has Jesus done for Jacob all of His life? Saved him. He, the angel has redeemed him, He says, from all evil. This is where it gets interesting. The word for evil here is, is specific. It's a very general word covering all kinds of evil. It covers active moral evil that is done against you or situational evil that just happens because you're living in a fallen world. Active moral evil that would be done against Jacob. Remember when he went to Laban and he worked for Laban, and he's working him for seven years. And what Laban eventually started doing is changing his wages up and down so that Laban would always get more money and that supposedly Jacob would be on the short end of the stick. And what did God do when it came to the time for the lambs to be born? If the wages for Jacob were to be spotted, all the flecks were spotted. If they were all to be solid, then all the, flecks were sol all this, the uh, flocks were solid. God intervened every single time and saved him. That would be... Uh, moral evil. Another moral evil that was done to Jacob would have been when Laban switched ladies on the wedding night in the bridal chamber. And boy, that's a moral evil. All the guys will say amen to that, right? Yeah, yeah. That's no fun. Thought I was marrying one woman, woke up the next morning and she wasn't there. Somebody else was. But he says, you know what? God even redeemed that. And God used that. Situational evil are just generally bad things that seem to happen because you live in a fallen world. Situational evil in Jacob's life would have been where Rachel died in childbirth. Nobody actively did anything against her. It just sort of happened because you're living in a fallen world. Situational evil is where you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you end up with a tire or a nail in your tire and you're, you're late for an appointment because your tire is flat. That's situational evil. And what Jacob says is this God who has redeemed him from all of this kind of evil that has been against him in his life. No matter if somebody tried to do something evil against him or something evil happened to him, the God of the universe, and specifically Jesus Christ, took all that, incorporated it into his plan, and used it for something good in his life. God's good plans for Jacob and ultimately for his sons, were not thwarted by moral or situational evil that was done against him. God is bigger than that. This is so incredibly cool. And what God, Jacob is saying to Joseph is, you know what? No matter what happens, no matter how much it looks like your life is going to be derailed by evil that is done to you, or it just happens to you. God is big enough to incorporate it and change it and use it for His good purposes and His good plan in your life. And it won't be just true for Joseph. It'll be true for Ephraim. It'll be true for Manasseh. And it comes all the way down to you and me. Romans 8.28, All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. 
If God has chosen you and he is, you are a child of Jesus Christ, he will work all things together in your life ultimately for your good and for his glory. And none of that evil can thwart that. And I think that's very incredibly cool. So let's go ahead and look at the blessing on the next page. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand and he moved it to Ephraim's head, from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused, and he said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Jacob is pretty old. And actually Joseph thinks he's getting a little kooky because he's crossing his arms in fact, the Hebrew here is interesting because it says that Joseph literally grabs his dad's hands and he tries to force them in the other direction. And Jacob fights back. I mean, this guy's about ready to die. I can just picture this, you know. You know no, no, this is the way it should be. The younger will be more blessed than the older. Now, why does Jacob say this? Quite honestly, I don't know. Maybe God has specifically told him that Ephraim will be more blessed than Manasseh. Maybe God didn't tell him, but maybe Jacob in his old age has understood that this seems to be the way that God usually works. Rather than choosing the people who look to be the leaders and those most prominent in the world, God loves to choose the underdogs, doesn't he? God loves to choose those who seem to be looked over and ignored and missed and to work through them. In fact, isn't that been the whole theme all the way through the book of Genesis? You have Cain and Abel. Cain was born first. Abel was born second. Whose offering was acceptable to the Lord? Abel, the second born. You have Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was born first, but God chose to work through Isaac, the second born. You have Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, but God chose to work through Jacob. You also have Perah and Zerah. You know, the same thing happened again. And here you have Ephraim and Manasseh. And God chooses to work through the second born instead of the first born. Now, here's a question for you. Was God really faithful to this? Did Ephraim end up being more blessed than Manasseh? Did they become a larger tribe than Manasseh? I did some checking on this because you sort of like to find out these things. I went through Exodus a little bit, followed them, so what happened in the next few years. Then I went through the book of Numbers because the book of Numbers is always good when you want to check numbers and see who grew to what size. That's sort of the whole point of it. And this is what you find. 
In the book of Exodus, two years after the Exodus, you find the tribe of Ephraim was actually 20% larger than the tribe of Manasseh. In fact, if you continue to go through the Old Testament, you find that at one point, the entire northern section of Israel was simply called the tribe of Ephraim because they became so large that that whole section, the northern kingdom, was just referred to by one tribe. Ephraim did become the larger tribe. You go 40 years after the Exodus, and this is what you find. The tribes of Reuben and Simeon had declined by 40,000 people. 40 years after the Exodus, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh had increased by 12,000 people. What's the theme this morning? God is faithful. God will always keep His word. It may take years. It may take generations. But if God has said it, it will prove true. When it came to coming to the promised land, it took 400 years plus an extra generation. And then to get to Joshua to start conquering it. But God was faithful. The last part of the text this morning is this. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Once again, the promise of the land and God's faithfulness to it. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Same message again, where Jacob is saying, God is faithful, Egypt is not your home, you will go to the promised land, and I'm giving you a mountain slope. Now, by the way, uh, I have not been able to find in the Old Testament, and many Bible scholars are not able to find exactly when Jacob took this mountain slope with his sword and bow. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is not when he got it, it's that he had it, and then he turned around on his deathbed and gave it to Joseph. Now think about this. Does Joseph really need any land right now? Does he need like a mountain slope anyplace? Joseph is second in command of Egypt. Like the last thing he needs is land. He's got more than enough in his possession. But here's the point. You won't be in the land of Egypt forever. I'm going to give you a deposit, some land of your own for your descendants, where you will eventually be, in the land of Canaan. Because this land that you have all of doesn't really matter. The land in Canaan is what, is, what, is what matters. Because God will be faithful and He will bring us there. It sort of reminds me of those U.S. savings bonds you'd get at Christmas as a kid. Anybody else get those savings bonds? You know, I, I was like the, the ultimate love-hate gifts. You know, thank you for the $100 U.S. savings bond. And I have to wait how many years to cash it? You know, it's really good now, but it's not good until way far in the future. Then when you finally cash it in the future, when you need some money as an adult, you're like, hey, this is actually a pretty good gift. I didn't see it back then, but it was worth it. And this is sort of what it's like, you know. Here's the land in Canaan. You're going to need it later. Just hold on to it for the family line. So here is the message that Jacob is giving to Joseph and ultimately he's giving to us. You know, God is faithful. 
is Jacob looks back on his life and the terrain of his life and all the ups and downs he faced, times where great evil was done against him and times where situational evil happened to him. He can see how God rolled that all into his plan and used that and was faithful to him all the way through and that just as God had said in Genesis 28 that I would never leave you, God never left him and carried him all the way through. And the same thing will happen to us. God will be faithful to us. We'll have ups. We'll have downs. But God will be faithful and carry us all the way through. In fact, in an even greater way, there is a greater son of Jacob whose birth we are about ready to celebrate where you can see this exact same theme took place. With Jesus... God had promised to be faithful to him. He underwent incredible moral evil against him, underwent incredible situational evil against him. He died on a cross, a death he didn't deserve. But was God faithful? Was God good? And did God roll all that evil into his plan and use it to accomplish something great and good for Jesus, for God's fame? Oh, yes, he did. He used that moral and situational evil done against Christ to be the very thing that would save you and me from sin and conquer Satan, sin, and death. And my words to you this morning are simply this. If Jacob could look back on his life and all the ups and downs he faced and say, you know what? God is faithful. He's been faithful in the past. And he says to Joseph, Trust me, he'll be faithful in the future. And if we can look at how God was faithful to Jesus and all the difficulty and crucifixion he went through, yet God brought something good out of it, the saving of our lives. God will be faithful to you and to me. We may not be able to understand it when we go through difficult times at the moment, but if we are able to live to the ripe old age of Jacob, when we can look back and see the vantage point of that terrain, like Jacob, we will say, God is good. God is faithful. We will tell our children and grandchildren, trust in his faithfulness. He's been faithful to me, and he'll be faithful to you all the way through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for Jacob being able to look back on your faithfulness in his life. And that just as you promised in Genesis 28, you had never left him. You hadn't necessarily kept all of the promises at that point, but he was confident you would. Jesus, I, I thank you that this is true for us also as believers who have also been sought out by God, that you will not leave us. You'll be faithful to complete the work you have begun in us. And I pray that you will allow us to live to the point where we can look back over the vantage point of history and see how you took those things that were evil and you rolled them into your master plan and used them to achieve something great and good for our lives and for your fame. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.